welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 694. Chapter 107, Fire. I came to the Pennysworth Inn long after the sun had set. The huge inn's windows swelled with lamplight, and there were a dozen horses tethered outside, champing into their feed bags. The door was open, casting a slant square of light into the dark street. But something was wrong. There was none of the pleasant rousing clamor that should be coming from a busy inn at night. Not a whisper. Not a word. Anxious, I crept closer. Every fairy tale I'd ever heard was running through my head. Had I been gone years? Decades? Or was it more ordinary trouble? Had there been more bandits than we thought? Had they returned to find their camp destroyed, then come here to make trouble? I slid close to a window, peered inside, and saw the truth. There were forty or fifty people in the inn. They sat at tables and benches and lined up at the bar. Every eye was pointed at the hearth. Martin sat there, taking a long drink. I couldn't look away, he continued. I didn't want to. Then Quoth stepped up in front of me, blocking the sight of her, and for a second I was free of her spell. I was covered in a sweat so thick and cold it felt like someone had thrown a bucket of water over me. I tried to pull him back, but he shook me off and ran to her. Martin's expression was lined with regret. "'How come she didn't get the Adam, and the big one, too?' asked a man with a hawkish face sitting nearby on the corner of the hearth. He drummed his, fing- he drummed his fingers on a battered fiddle case. "'If you'd really seen her, you all would have run off after her.' There was a murmur of agreement from the room. Tempe spoke up from a nearby table, his blood-red shirt making him easy to end the page on. "'I'm Jeremy.' "'I'm Jordana.' I'm Nick. Tempe sure is easy, am I right, folks? A-O. A-O. As Nick pointed out, I think, at the beginning of the sort of forest bandit sequence, the Pennysworth Inn kind of bookends that part of the book in the same way that Quoth entering and leaving Fae by means of the Greystones bookends his time in Fae. So there's like, in that sense, there's like a story and a story happening, too. And this is the, the, the sort of the, the parenthetical around the parenthetical, if that makes sense. It also serves as a transition from the, wild, the civilization to the wilderness and then back again from the wilderness to civilization. And that becomes a text in a couple of pages when Quoth actually becomes sort of disoriented and like bewildered at being surrounded by the trappings of civilization. So there's a lot of work happening here at the Penny's Worth. For the price of a penny, you sure get a lot. You sure do. I suppose you get a penny's worth. What? <laughs> get out. Okay. I'm sorry. Forgive me. At the end of the last chapter, that's kind of like, it's the end of that chapter and it's an end to a lot of the sort of tensions or conflicts we've been thinking about. So Rothfuss takes care to set up some new tensions for us to think about right away where he's like, well, how does Quoth know that he's come back, you know, roughly when he left right how does he he doesn't know how much time has passed in the mortal world and he has a moment of kind of worrying about that before he realizes well i can't have been gone that long because they're sitting here telling a story about like when i left them yeah it kind of gives you an idea of the time frame it doesn't it doesn't right like it does in the sense that it can't be like decades from now because they're here at the end telling a story, but it does make us wonder 
in a more localized sense, how much time has passed. Like, are they telling the story that very night, like the same night he left? Or are they telling the story, like, have they decided to hang around and kind of lick their wounds? And they're telling the story like a couple of weeks after they fought the bandits. It's not quite clear. Would they really hang around for weeks? Maybe they would. But that becomes more clear as we go. And I think what this is really meant to drive home is that we're supposed to figure out quite quickly that not a lot of time has passed here. Whether or not it's days or or hours doesn't really matter. Quoth has spent a very long time in the Fae for real, real. As we talked about previously, he had enough time for his beard to grow and then shave and then regrow. So quite some time. Yeah, the time dilation is kind of working in the yeah in the 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 opposite way and since everyone is still there and as we learn on tomorrow's page like dayton's arm is still broken and everything's very fresh in everyone's minds then again it sounds a bit like they've they've been able to tell the story a few times it seems like word has got around and people have come to kind of listen to the story or like chat with them or maybe the inn was this busy i don't know and they're just all telling the story but it seems to me like they're getting a little bit well practiced Yeah, I think we can pay attention to the rest of this chapter and see what context clues can tell us exactly how long they've been here and how long it's been since they last saw both. Reasonable. Yes, let's do that. I I feel like there's like, because this page is like right about to be something, there's not a lot to talk about on the actual page. Yeah, it does. My only other big note is that the guy with the hawkish face and the battered fiddle case, based on that description alone, I'm picturing him as like Quoth's Wario. <laughs> I think he is supposed to be a figure of some scorn. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's another trooper, but he's not like a proper trooper. He's just like a, a fiddler. Yeah, he's a just a traveling musician. He's... he's not one of the raw. Exactly. And he's like, well, how come you did it? He's a skeptic. Fair. Everybody needs a devil's advocate. <laughs> Hmm. Do they though? The Not devil sure does. That, well, like just to prove them wrong later and then feel good about it, you know. Everyone needs a foil and nemesis. Indeed. Both has enough of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like everyone needs like a casual foil, like, not like a real foil, like just like just like someone you can feel good about like getting one up on, but not like whether it's a big deal one way or the That's other. That's why we like, keep you like around, <laughs> No, no, Jordana, you're you're pointing out something interesting here. Like in the same way that people have like kind of different circles of, of friendship, like there are some friends who you feel very close to. You talk about, you know, your deepest, darkest feelings. You know, you, you're almost like family. And then there are friends who like you're happy to hang around with. You like seeing them, but maybe you're not going to tell them like all your really personal stuff. And then there's friends outside of that who are like acquaintances you kind of see at parties because they're friends of friends or like, you know, maybe you're like in a class with them or something but you don't like make time to hang out with them. And in the same way, perhaps you're right that they're like circles of nemesis, you know, like folks deepest, darkest nemesis nemeses are like the Chandrian and Ambrose. And then he has like other like people. He also like does not like, but who he doesn't think of as like his bitter foes, like him or, you know, some of the kids in Tarbine. And then at the outermost circle, there's this guy who's just like a crummy traveling musician who's gainsaying his friends. And Jordana, that what I said yeah. came out more mean than I intended. You're one of my dearest friends, and I cherish you, uh, and I cherish your friendship. Oh, I didn't take it as mean at all. Very, very I actually, I feel like it was very appropriate. <laughs> but of course, 
<laughs> I appreciate There's that. There's no one you can be meaner <laughs> to than someone who you know well enough to call them a close friend because you know all the meanest things to say to them. It's true. Well, also, also, you know that if you say a mean thing to them, the chances of them forgiving you are pretty high. Hmm. Until you start saying things you can't take I still back. Haven't, you can say things, but you can't pull one over on me in Catan. Nick still hasn't forgiven me for that time that I played Catan with him. That's right. Him, Both of you Jeff. have wronged me deeply in Catan, and I will never forgive you. Listener, I'm sure I've talked about this <laughs> in the podcast before, but you're going to hear about it again. This Paradin... <laughs> colluded with her real-life husband in a board game of Catan, a game that is explicitly not allowed teammates. Because if you have two teams, two people working at a at the same purposes, they're going to steamroll everybody. And listener, they absolutely did. She leveraged her control, <laughs> her real-life, out-of-game uh, control over this other player uh, to, to win a game of Catan, and that is unacceptable to me and she will never be forgiven and let's not forget the time that it jeremy built a wall of roads around me in Catan, making it impossible for me to expand i will never forgive him either uh you're dead to me am i the real the real lesson here is don't play Catan with me <laughs> yeah because you'll lose that's right you suckers come I'm here even... come here try me or you'll win and he'll hate you forever that's right it's lose lose <laughs> As I'm constantly saying, I didn't do that on purpose. I just had somewhere to go and you happened to be in the way. I didn't even realize I'd done it until you pointed it out. Yeah, well, that that's what makes it worse. Sure, a likely story, Jeremy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> hang on, wait, I have one more. I have one more joke. Playing with me is like playing Settlers of Kobayashi Maru because it's a no-win situation. Okay, maybe that joke wasn't that good. But I, like Kirk, don't believe in a no-win scenario. Well... You're dead to me. We have uh, the final uh, piece of the letter from Arthur, who writes on Quoth's age. I assume we're finished talking about the page. Oh, yeah. Yes, you're good to go. Nobody's age makes any sense in this book. How are old people attending the university? From context, I gather it is between 18 and 24-ish. If so, how is Fella, say 19, attracted to a 15-year-old boy, and how is this not creepy and weird? Same with Davy. From context, it seems like she is in her early to mid-20s who offers to sleep with him and is constantly hitting on him. Also, how is Ambrose already established at the university, and so say 20 to 21, dating Denna, who's like 17? Or worse, how creepy is it that the guy who runs the Yolian is pining after her? He's like in his 30s. How is Quoth at a young 16-ish mistaken for being in his 20s at the mayor's court? Why does everybody respect him so easily given his age? If I was working with a 15-year-old, no matter how smart, I would be struggling to treat him as an equal. Did he go through super puberty or something so he looks like a 20-year-old at 15? Also, why is every woman in the entire story attracted to Quoth or at least hits on him once? Mola, Fella, Denna, Davy, all the female Adam, Felurian, the woman in the mayor's gardens, the tavern worker that does not share Denna's letter at Anchors, the tavern worker at the Penniesworth, just to name a few. Basically, the only women who aren't are either grandmotherly figures like Shaheen or the Levenshire healer, or notably non-conventionally attractive, Hespi. Combined with way almost combined with the way almost everybody is described as attractive, I can't help but see this as a very Gary Stewish and fairly immune <laughs> Gary Stew. That's funny. And fairly immersion breaking. Anyway, there is these are some things that have been bothering me. Feel free to comment on whatever of the above you find interesting. Maybe more will come in a future letter. Thank you for the podcast and best wishes. Signed Arthur. So I think there's some valid critiques in here. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that it's it is in the text that Quoth comes off as older 
than he is. He he seems uh, wise beyond his years, and that is probably amplified after his sojourn in the Fey, because I think he has, in fact, lived longer than his his IRL calendar years. And I would also say that I think that this world doesn't have the concept of teenagers. I think that this is sort of like a pre uh, pre nineteen fifties pre pre capitalism, shall we say, society wherein teenagers haven't been uh, highlighted as a demographic to market to, and therefore separated from either childhood or adulthood. So it seems to me that once you kind of come of age, whatever that means, you're considered an adult even if you are young at like fifteen or so. Yeah, I I would say that that tracks, and we there's all there's also like plenty of things in Quoth's life experience that I think give him this air of like being wiser than his years and seeming a little bit more old or more mature, uh, because he spent his childhood traveling from place to place. Uh, so not only was he like learning a lot from his parents and learning from Ben who are like cultured, intelligent, educated people. But he also just like knows a lot about like how people are in the world. Cause he's been to lots of different places. Uh, and then obviously he's really street smart cause he spent his formative early teenage years surviving for himself on the streets of Tarbine. And I think that that's given him a lot of like grit and uh, kind of like a confidence in himself and a no nonsense attitude. Uh, and then, of course, he's just, like, he's smart and he's good at, like, reading people. Uh, so I think all of those factors, in addition to the ones that Nick mentioned, make him seem, like, older and wiser than he is. Except for those moments, of course, where he acts exactly the way a teenage boy should and would. As for, like, the people's age thing, I also think it's best just, like, not to worry about it too much. Like, trying trying to do, like, age discourse with these characters in a fantasy book is not really a productive use of anybody's time, in my opinion. Like, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I'm not really bothered by the age thing, also because I feel like different people really age at different rates, especially in that gap. Like, I remember being in grade nine and, like, a dude in my class having, like, a, as much of a beard as one of my yeah, friends has sure. now. And thinking, like, how is on earth is this possible? I'd be like, there, I was like, there's a grown man in my in my grade nine class. How is that possible? Yeah, some but, like, teenagers, like, grow into their adulthood and some teenage people just get, like, hit by the puberty truck and it all happens at once. <laughs> hit by the puberty yeah. Also, the fluoride in the water is is uh, is causing people to to the frogs are turning gay. We've seen the documents, yeah. uh, and I think that it, I think that there is a valid critique that you raise um, on the whole like all the women who are attractive uh, also note Quoth as attractive. I think that's a, a valid critique, and I think it's been raised um, before and since. And I don't really want to relitigate it here today at this time. I know we've talked about it, and we'll probably talk about it again. I think that within the text, there's an explanation. And that is that, like Jeremy said, Quoth probably like isn't really aware of his um, vibes, I guess. Like, I think he is probably very charismatic and good looking and like strong and lean and all of that. And he does go at one point in the book, like there is a moment where Bass says, hey, how come all the women in this story are so attractive? And and Quoth goes, all women are queens, don't you know? You know, whether or not that's like right or wrong, I don't really want to litigate that. I do think that, uh, the Rothfuss of today would approach this with a little bit more tact than the Rothfuss of checking publication date here. Like 2012, I think. Because a lot of the discourse has evolved since then. I kind of, I like the idea, 
I like the idea that perhaps like in this world, maybe the definition of beauty is broader than what we experience from our from our media. And so everybody's beautiful and that's great. Furthermore, uh, to that point, I would like to point out that you yourself named several women in the book who want nothing to do with him. And I would also like to point out that a lot of the women who like appear to be attracted to him at first aren't attracted to him in that way once they spend enough time with him. So I think it's also <laughs> important to distinguish between like having a crush on someone because they're like hot and confident and then like getting to know them and like, oh, I actually don't think I want to date this person. We're better off as friends because he's also kind of an insufferable prick sometimes. Like that's certainly how Fella seems to feel. And like Mola doesn't really hit on him again after like, I don't even remember her really hitting on him the first time. Devi, I think, is not hitting on him because she... I get the feeling that Devi acts that way, like hitting on wise to a lot of people. Whether or not Devi is like attracted to Quoth, I think that her flirtations with him are because she wants something from him, not because she wants to date him necessarily. Right? Like she, she throws herself at him to get access to the archive. So like, I don't think that's at all like, you know, an actual romantic interest. And we've talked about before and we'll talk about again that like the Adam just have a very different, perhaps more enlightened attitude towards like sex and dating uh, or like they just don't think of casual sex as being like particularly serious, right? Like, so I think a lot of these cases, it's not actually anything to do with Quoth in particular, uh, so much as specific character beats or motivations that these women have. He's not just banging tavern wenches left and right. Well, kind of, sort of. And I think this is a timely letter because now that he's emerged from the Fae, he does kind of start off on that trajectory. But I also think, and I'm going to keep an eye on that in this read, um, that that well is poisoned a little bit now. That, like, some part of, of Felurian's magic has rubbed off on him and he is, like, incapable of forming the kind of meaningful relationship that he craves. And instead, there's, like, a superficiality to all of his relationships going forward. Um, I need the text to support that, but that's kind of the thesis i'm working on uh on on this this pass and i i will see what rothis is building towards but i kind of have the sense that like rothis has something to say about like the nature of of true love and affection and that like he is trying to make the point that sex is good and fun but is like necessarily or not necessarily but like can be and perhaps sometimes should be separated from from romantic love for better or worse. Mm. I would also like to put forward that even if Quoth is just like a hot guy who everyone is attracted to, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that being a character trait of your protagonist. I think that's perfectly fine. Sometimes you just want a protagonist who is hot and gets to f- Yeah, sometimes you want to read about a himbo. Yeah, very reasonable. Yeah. And listeners, you can find out which of us is hot and gets to f- on tomorrow's page. Spoiler warning, uh, it's all of us. The wind! wind!